Pursuant to the Fair Use Doctrine of Section 107 of the Copyright Act of 1976, limited use of copyrighted material is permitted for specific purposes such as criticism, comment, news, reporting, teaching, scholarship, education, and research. This podcast is otherwise copyrighted by the Underground Christian Broadcast. Welcome to episode 43 of the Underground Christian Podcast, where the Bible and the 21st century collide head-on in a spectacular display of shock and awe. Well, it seems that not even the cows are safe anymore, based on this news headline, dated April 22, 2023, from Breitbart News. It reads, Texas cattle that died mysteriously had their tongues removed. Hmm. The article says, Six cattle that died mysteriously in Texas had their tongues removed, authorities said, and the hide around one side of their mouths was also gone with no visible blood. The Madison County Sheriff's Office said on Wednesday that the cause of death for the six cattle is unknown, according to a report by NBC News. Well, I'm no sheriff or investigative journalist, but if you ask me, I would say that it's just barely possible that someone killed the bovines. I'm just saying. Continuing with the article. The animals, each of which belonged to a separate pasture, were found alongside a Texas state highway in three different counties, Madison, Brazos, and Robertson, the sheriff's office added. Two of the cattle had their genitalia and anuses removed with a circular cut that authorities said had been made with the same precision as the cuts noted around the jawlines of each cow. All six bodies were found in undisturbed grass with no clear signs of a struggle and no footprints or tire tracks nearby. Ranchers also reported that no predators or birds would scavenge the remains of the cow, leaving it to decay untouched for several weeks, the sheriff's office said in a statement. Authorities added that similar findings have been reported across the country. According to the comments section of the article, which can be the most entertaining part of it, these kinds of mutilations and killings have been reported across the country for decades. While I don't recall reading about cows having their lips removed before, I have read articles about roosters and cats having their blood drained and some odd part of them removed, with the carcass usually left impaled or hanging on something like a fence post. The going bet in the comments section of the article is that these animals are being sacrificed by satanic cults who use the body parts for ritual purposes. That would be consistent with the other animal mutilations that I've read about before. Another popular comment is that they're leftovers from experiments by UFOs. It seems that the writers of these comments believe that the drivers of the UFOs putter about looking for cows and other hapless animals to mutilate, apparently for some as-yet-to-be-determined cosmological purpose. Regardless of who or what is to blame, I can think of no more of an appropriate Bible verse for this kind of activity than Romans 1. It says, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do things which are not fitting. And this certainly qualifies as not fitting in my book. Animal mutilation is one step away from human mutilation and cutting off cow private parts and lips qualifies as a fine example of the debasing of humanity through the practice of a cruel and inhuman act, especially if it's designed to accomplish a godless, demonic purpose. Which fits right in with this next story. Dateline, April 25th, 2023, from Boston.com. The largest satanic gathering in history is coming to Boston, it reads. Or at least, that's the billing for the sold-out SatanCon 2023 
hosted by the Salem-based Satanic Temple that promises to bring a lineup of lectures and panels and entertainment and a Satanic marketplace to the Marriott Copley Place from April 28th to 30th. Phew! That is not only a long run-on sentence, but it's a really badly organized long run-on sentence. What are they teaching journalists these days? This event was held just a weekend or two ago, and this story came out a few days ahead of it. The story continues. This year marks the second annual event following the inaugural SatanCon held in Scottsdale, Arizona last year. Now that's something a city can be proud of, hosting the inaugural SatanCon extravaganza. The news journalist took a pause here in her stellar news reporting to educate us a bit about the Satanic Temple. She wrote, There are often two misunderstandings about the church, according to Dex Desjardins, a spokesman for the Satanic Temple, including the notion that the congregation is an activist organization with a name intended to simply troll Christians. That is not who we are, said Desjardins. No, of course it isn't, Dex. You are a synagogue of Satan, not trolls whose collective purpose is to annoy Christians. The annoyance factor is merely coincidental. I'm sure it never occurred to most of your members that your organization's name would ever bother Christians or Jews. Satanism, Desjardins wrote to set the record straight, is its own unique religious tradition with its own positive ethics. It is not a reaction to or a subset of other religions. Yes, they have their own religious traditions, like blood rituals and horned hand-waving congregants, who are not to be confused with Texas Longhorn aficionados, and pretty red and black draped altars that feature an image of Baphomet, and upside-down crosses, which is their own symbol and should not be confused with that other symbol of the Christians. And they have their own positive ethics that are memorialized in famous slogans that rock and roll stars like to display on their shirts and jackets, like, Do as thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. You know, stuff like that. The other misconception summarized the not-to-be-named journalist was that the church worships a literal Satan or the devil. It is a belief, continued Dex, that comes along with all of the predictable Hollywood stereotypes and satanic panic hysteria. We do not believe in or worship a literal Satan. We do not believe in or worship symbolic, bent fingers, evil. We believe that unnecessary suffering is bad and that things which reduce unnecessary suffering are good. Our Satan represents a Promethean hero as depicted in the works of writers such as Anatoly Francais and John Milton, bringing the light of knowledge to humanity in defiance of the ultimate tyrant, he wrote. Satan is the symbol around which our ethos is built. While most of us have probably heard of the author John Milton, I very much doubt many of us have read his works because, by modern standards, they are almost unreadable. They're long, old English works of literature and poetry. People who like to appear educated and erudite, however, love to cite famous ancient authors that almost no one has read. I doubt very much that Mr. Milton himself would have thought he had very much in common with a satanic temple or its empty philosophical ideas. I'm not as sure, though, about Anatole Francais. He was a famous 19th century French poet who, according to the Tome of All Human Wisdom and Knowledge, Wikipedia, was, quote, considered in his day the ideal French man of letters, end quote. Interestingly, that's the exact same phrase that's used in a Britannica article. Great minds think alike, I guess. Straight from goodreads.com, Mr. Francais is quoted as writing, Until one has loved an animal, a part of one's soul remains unawakened. Now, I do hope he was using the term love in a whimsical, sentimental sense, 
and not in our 21st century be-your-authentic-sense-literal-self sense. But Mr. Francais also had this to say, Never lend books, for no one ever returns them. The only books I have in my library are books that other folks have lent me. <laughs> oh yes, it's funny until you realize that he meant it. But maybe it was a thought like the following that caught the eye of Mr. Desjardins. We have never heard the devil's side of the story. God wrote all the book. Well, yes, he did. And that is where the Satanic Temple and Mr. Desjardins find some common ground with Mr. Francais. They would both very much like to tell us the rest of the story uh, from their perspectives. Just like the real Satan that they absolutely positively do not believe in or worship across their little hearts, these people are very good at practicing the fine art of mixing some truth with some lies in order to conjure a lot of deception, which is an art that is very popular these days. They suffer, they think, by being subject to the whims of that ultimate tyrant who is, of course, Yahweh, God, and his physical representation, Jesus Christ. I'm not so sure that John Milton would agree with that characterization of the Almighty, though. Desjardins continued in this article, Our mission is to encourage benevolence and empathy, to reject tyrannical authority, to advocate practical common sense, to oppose injustice, and to undertake noble pursuits such as mission-specific activism, since activism can be a natural extension of our sincerely held religious beliefs. Among those initiatives are the Church's Religious Reproductive Rights Campaign, which advocates against abortion restrictions that affect members' religious rights of bodily autonomy, and the Sober Faction, a peer support group to assist those struggling with substance use disorder without having to experience the burden of religious dogma and superstition. There is also the after-school Satan Club, which Desjardins described as an after-school program that promotes self-directed education by supporting the intellectual and creative interests of students, among others. So, in their benevolence and empathy, Satanists advocate for religious reproductive rights, which is a euphemism for the killing of children in the womb, and sometimes afterwards. It is a culturally acceptable one-way benevolence and empathy for the people who are 100% responsible for the creation of a new human life, and 0% benevolence and empathy for the human being who is going to bear 100% of the cost of their actions. After all, we don't want to create any anxiety or stress in the lives of the two people who wanted to have some fun with their bodies, but could care less about the body of another human being. I mean, the Satanic Templists sincerely believe that the little beast should not be afforded any use of its mother's body for any portion of its miserable little life because that is an intolerable violation of her bodily autonomy. Which it is, except for the fact that her body willingly took a present from an outside body that she knew very well could result in a new body that would be in her body and would require her body to accommodate its body for a period of time until the little body was able to survive outside of her body all on its own, which is the way Mother Nature planned it for all of you Mother Nature-worshipping people out there. But if you want to take the side of the Satanic Templists and impose all the hardship on the little body that didn't make any of the decisions that led to its creation, then at least you should do so with the integrity and honesty of calling it what it is, which is infanticide, which is just a subcategory of homicide. But they probably think that's being too harsh. If it must be called that, then Satanists, in their empathy and benevolence, would certainly rather have it considered justifiable homicide under the circumstances, because everything is always about their circumstances. And when they are not actively seeking to kill unborn children, they instead elect to go to our schools where there are children who were actually allowed to be born, 
and they start fun clubs to teach all the little bodies that got away from the forceps and poisons and had a chance to grow up. They teach them all about sex and how to be empathetic and benevolent little sexaholics who merrily frequent the medical clinics to get their regular dose of vital women's health care so they can eliminate those burdensome things that grow in them. And then they graduate to become drag queens at story hours. So what do they do up there at SatanCon? Boston.com says, SatanCom, like most conventions, will offer a mix of educational events along with entertainment and other festivities. Attendees at SatanCon will enjoy lectures and panels presented by our campaigns and congregations, as well as the Satanic Marketplace, sporting over 50 vendors. Oh, they have a little Satanic Market going on there, do they? Their little Satanic vendors probably sell a lot of Baphomet t-shirts and one-eyed coffee mugs, along with the books on spellcasting and sacred candles and pickled appendages, bat poop and brooms and wands and crystals and pentagrams and cauldrons, and whatever else a practicing Satanist may need. They also have posted an agenda for SatanCon 2023, which seems to have a number of must-see, seat-grabbing lectures to attend. Lectures with titles like Deconstructing Your Religious Upbringing by, wait for it, Judas Marduk, and Sins of the Flesh, Satanism and Self-Pleasure by Dr. Eric Sprankle. Now that's a must-see. And there is Reimagining Lilith as an Archetype for Reproductive Justice by Amanda Barton. And for those of you who don't know who Lilith is, she is a demon of the night who was reputed to have so hated Adam and Eve that she was determined to act out her hatred through seduction of men, infanticide of children, and the practice of witchcraft against anyone who worshipped Yahweh. So yeah, she's a good fit with the Satanic Temple people. They also are hosting a talk titled Pandemonium, 5,000 Years of Demonology by Sally Christie. Not to mention, The Devil is in All of You, The Changing Face of Satan by Jacob Williamson. Well, who couldn't wait to sit in on those enlightening continuing ed classes to get them on your resume? The article continues, SatanCom will also feature the Satanic Ball on Friday evening with an event called Impious Conventus, the Goddess Assembly, on Saturday night to follow. The evening's event will include a drag performance by Madeline Hatter of Dragula fame, followed by a concert by the band Satanic Planet. Attendees are required to be at least 18 years old and vaccinated against COVID-19, a news release said. I wonder why they need to be 18, and why isn't vaccinating people against their will considered an intolerable act of tyrannical oppression? You might be interested in knowing that the event was a sold-out success and was certainly quite profitable for the Satanic Temple, which just happens to be headquartered in Salem, Massachusetts. And their choice of headquarters location is not a poke at Christians, either. According to the New York Post, the theme of this year's Satancom is Hexenacht in Boston, which means Witches' Night. The good news is that there are still some people around who are offended by this grotesque display of overt Satanism. Hundreds of Catholic protesters, some Protestant protesters, and even some members of the Patriot Front, a purported white nationalist group, all protested outside the venue. Say what you want about the problems with Catholicism. At least they have people who show up to represent God in these situations, and they were the best-dressed part of the crowd, too. Not that they get much support from their purported leaders. According to BostonGlobe.com, quote, The Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Boston has encouraged its parishioners to stay away from the event. We ask Catholics not to organize or encourage others to go to the event to protest, 
It will only make it more prominent and give the organizers the attention they seek, the Archdiocese said in a statement on its website. Yes, that is a fantastic strategy. If we just ignore it, maybe it will go away. And it will, right after the event. That strategy has worked so well on all the other social and moral issues of the day that it must have seemed a no-brainer to roll it out on this one, too. But in the world of Satanism, there is reality and there is performance. And for all its vile human-centric obsession, Satancom is more of a performance than a reality, a performance that is meant to ridicule Satanism to make it playful and fun. Take away the serious and people reflexively laugh at accusations of satanic activities. It's a great cover story, and it is a widely used tactic that enables organizations to engage in nefarious activities without attracting too much attention. By making Satan a cartoon character, no one will take him seriously until it's too late, which will be when they are exposed to the real thing. So let's meet someone who is exposed to the real thing. Her name is Teresa, and she was the subject of a 60 Minutes Australia investigation back when 60 Minutes and Australia both made an attempt to conduct real investigations instead of just producing propaganda hit pieces. Teresa was a teenager when this interview took place, and she was asked to relive an earlier part of her life when she got to meet Satan's real representatives face-to-face. -face. I want to give you a fair warning, though. This is not an easy report to listen to. But if it's any consolation, it's a little easier to listen to it than to watch the video and see her face. You might ask, why am I playing an interview that dates back many years? Well, because this type of activity has not been stopped, but is in fact intensified. It's a worldwide problem, not just one that is confined to a foreign land at a moment in time. It's going on today, and the people who participate in this activity are being spiritually groomed and readied for the next phase of the operation, which is rapidly approaching. As the great Apostle Paul once said, we are engaged in a great spiritual war, and Teresa is providing us a glimpse of how Satan is preparing his forces for the approaching confrontation with God that will be manifested as a confrontation with Jesus' representatives on this earth, the Christians. I'm going to play the whole interview because it's worth hearing it. To describe this story as horrifying would be an understatement. And if that sounds like a warning, then that's exactly what it's meant to be. It deals with the sexual abuse of children by satanic cults. And not only that, human sacrifices as well. We started investigating these secret satanic cults when a British member of parliament linked them with the ritual murder of children. In this day and age, it sounded too far-fetched, as did suggestions that the same thing might be happening in Australia. But then we met Teresa. She's only 15, and for 12 of those years, she's been the victim of relentless depravity. Teresa's story is both shocking and compelling, yet it's a story she's anxious to tell. But again, we should warn you that parts of this report may be distressing. Friends of family and strangers and our family used to rape me, um, make me uh, abort the babies I had. It would be hard to imagine more misery and suffering than what Teresa says she's had to endure. And us kids would be made to do things with the adults and the animals, and then a, a sacrifice would happen. The sacrifice, uh, were these animal sacrifices? Animals and um, people. On what scale do you think this was happening? Enormous, far beyond what we've ever heard of here before. 
Teresa's mother, Bridget. You're talking about mass murder? Yes, on a scale that this country's never heard of before. Like the old people's homes now, I mean, these are... For the first time, Teresa is learning what it's like to live with love instead of fear. In this quiet English village, with the help of her mother, she's slowly repairing her broken life. Teresa is now 15, but at the age of two, she was left in the care of this woman, the grandma she called Nan. And that, she says, is when a torment started. Who was the leader? Who was, uh, who was the boss of the gang, of the cult? At home, it was my Nan. Your nan uh, made you have sex with animals? Yeah. Um, like goats and donkeys. The story of Teresa is a story almost too horrible to recount. A case of child abuse that goes well beyond the kind of things we normally associate with the abuse of children. In 27 years of reporting, it has to be one of the most painful stories I have ever had to tell. How many men or how many people would have sex with you? Well, at one time. Yes. About everyone who was there, which must have been about 20, you know, from 10 to 20 people. If it was a, a big ceremony, it used to be 30. What would your grandma be doing uh, when these men were forcing themselves on you? Usually laughing or smiling or having sex with another man or other men. A chronicle of debauchery and depravity so horrific it's hard to believe. You have to ask yourself, could Teresa be just making it up? No. I know what's true and what's not. No, I know what I saw. Children don't make up elaborate lies that this would have to be if it was a lie, which I, I know it is not. It isn't. This couldn't be a terrible dream, a nightmare that you're reliving? No. It's no dream. It's a nightmare, but it's, it's not one you can wake up from. It's there all the time. This really happened, you're quite sure of that? Yeah. The police don't think Teresa made up a story. Some of the cult members are to stand trial. Five men have been charged with rape. As for Nan, the grandmother, she's 61 and lives in this council flat in South London. She's charged on seven counts of aiding and abetting rape and two counts of performing abortions on Teresa. If you're finding this hard to believe, so did I at first. But then there are the medical reports, evidence of sustained sexual abuse. And there's this, a statement prepared for 60 Minutes by Teresa's psychiatrist. It says, in my opinion, Teresa's account is not the product of a psychotic illness, nor the figment of a fertile imagination. I believe her to be telling the truth. We also took Teresa's story to this man, therapist Ray Wire. He 
He reads a transcript of our interview and listens to her voice. It's no dream. Few people, if any, in Britain have counselled as many victims of satanic abuse or Satanists themselves as Ray Wire has. If there is an expert on satanic cults, it would have to be him. Do you believe Teresa's story? I believe Teresa's story. It's exactly the same story as I've heard from men who says they've done it. You've dealt with other cases like hers? Yes. 21 cases like hers, he says, in the past two years alone. Themes like they were put in boxes with spiders and worms, where they were trapped in fear, where there was a high use of excrement and urine, where there was talk of human sacrifice. Both of Take just one of those rituals, putting children in boxes with spiders and worms. Now, listen to what Teresa told her mother. And they had a coffin-like box that children were put in with spiders and snakes and the lid shut and left in there, I would have come out deranged. I could not have coped with that mentally at all. You have evidence to back up stories like Teresa's, that this yes. is really happening? Well, we have that age of child, six, five and four, giving information that ties up with Teresa. How do those children know? How do those children able to describe rituals, to talk about ceremonies, to talk about sacrificing animals? How do those children know? Nightmares, imagining it? You can't imagine those things at, at three and four years old. And you also don't have the evidence of anal sex abuse and oral sex abuse and all that other abuse that clearly those children have experienced and endured. During these ceremonies, was Satan, the devil ever referred to? He was called Lucifer. Um, what did they say about the devil, about Lucifer? That um, killing the people made him happy. Sacrifices to please the devil. According to Teresa, the worst rituals took place at a house somewhere in the country. It was big, you know, expensive. From the front, it looked like a castle. I had a long drive and big double wooden doors. Do you think they were rich people then? Very rich. Now, where was this big house somewhere in the country? Teresa says she can't take the police there because the Satanists made sure she'd never know how to find it. Teresa was always drugged or on a couple of occasions she says she was knocked out um, so that she never fully knew the route. There was a tramp who was brought in once, you know, and he was killed. He was cut from his throat down to his stomach and uh, they, they ate him, or bits of him. They killed a man at a ceremony? Yeah. In front of you? Yeah, in front of all of, the, all of us. Did the tramp, uh, did this man uh, fight back? No, I think he was, you know, drunk or something. He seemed really dopey. He was laughing a lot when he was brought in. And he started screaming when they began to cut. But after a while, you know, he died. 
I'd seen a few killings before then. Although I wasn't used to it, it you know, that was the worst one. I really don't know what I thought. I suppose I thought, thank God it's not me. Let me get this right now. Uh, are you saying that you saw more than one person killed in that house? Yeah. I've seen um, loads of babies killed there, just newborn babies or aborted ones which were only small, you know, four-year-olds, any age really. Did they ever say they might kill you? Uh, they threatened to kill my little girl who, when I left, was still at the house. A friend? Huh? What little girl? My little girl, Alex. She's about four now. You mean you had a child? Yeah. How old were you when you had that child? Eleven. Mm. Motherhood at the age of eleven. But from what Teresa told her mother, it wasn't the only pregnancy. We think um, about seven or eight times. It's hard to say. Um, it was constantly happening from the time she was capable of being pregnant. What happened to the pregnancies, to the babies? Um, they were aborted by my nan or by one of the doctors at the house. There were doctors there at that house? Yeah, there was... Um, two, I think. Yeah, and a, and a nurse. What would happen uh, to the fetuses, the unborn babies? They used to be taken away most of the time. And one time, the baby was taken out of me and then killed in front of me. Because it was still alive. And then, uh, what would happen? Well, after they killed it. I would eat it. Well, we were also made to eat it. You were made to eat your own fetus? Yeah. Who made you do this? My nan. You'd think the one person in the world you could leave a little girl with would be grandma, someone to give her love and protect her from harm. Yet, when Teresa was left to live with her grandmother, they might as well have handed her to the devil himself. Grandmothers, I mean, the vision, it, it conjures up for you, a sweet old lady with grey hair, rosy cheeks, holding her arms out to love her grandchildren. And it was exactly the reverse. But why was Teresa living with Nan in the first place and not with her mother. Well, when uh, my first marriage broke up, um, I, I took the children with me and couldn't cope. So I gave them to their father, who in turn moved to his mother's. And to Nan's he, place? Yeah. And when he left the Nan's place, um, he left the children there. How do you feel now towards her grandma and the other people who, who did all those things to your daughter? Uh, they disgust me. They are the worst form of life, this earth.
has had the misfortune to create a vile. Did you ever try to to run away? You must have been must have been frightened. A couple of times I did, but my uncle he caught me and brought me back. Going to the police. Did that occur to you? No. No. I thought it was normal, you know, even though I didn't like it. You know, I'm, oh. I mean, you don't like to eat greens, but, you, you know, somehow, you, you know, you thought, I thought it was just her being called to be kind or something like that. She said to me it was something that everybody did, she thought, you know, like you don't like going to school or the dentist. You don't like going to the black masses. It was never any different. I didn't have nothing to compare it to. All part of life, Teresa thought. Even a miscarriage one day at school. Yeah, I asked the teacher if I could go to the toilet and she allowed me out. I went to the toilet and um, the baby was in my knickers. I thought it was dead, but it, it wasn't. It was still moving. And yet no one at school knew? No. Saw anything? No. Or if they did, they didn't say. No, she was treated for a high temperature, a fever, nothing more. What did she do with the baby? She kept her for a while because she was frightened that they'd use the child as part of the rituals. So, uh, she turned the pencil case into a little coffin. Apparently, uh, she put roses in to make her smell sweet, put a letter with her, pictures of herself and her brother, a picture of me. And then I put it down the chute because I didn't want my nan to get it. As we said earlier, the police have already charged some members of the cult and we know they're also investigating Teresa's accounts of those ritual killings. If there were as many as she told us, then the Satanists had a problem. How did they get rid of the bodies? They had um, a tub, you know, pretty big, I don't know. A very big tub and they used to put the bodies and bones in there. And it used to go like, you know, fizzy and that. And then there was nothing left. Or well, there didn't seem to be, but when they cleared it out, there used to be a sludge at the bottom. Teresa's story, her account, doesn't really surprise you. It doesn't surprise me in the light of uh, satanic abuse, no. Do you get frustrated with people who just won't accept that these things do happen? Yes, because I, I've worked with murderers in prisons for years. Not that long ago, a boy was found in a forest in southern England without a head. We have no doubts that men can do that. And yet when we start talking about men within Satanism who actually believe in evil and it's the right to express evil, we suddenly have a, a, a doubt. As I was leaving Teresa's place, she handed me this note. It's addressed to the film crew. She says, thanks for bothering to help kids like me. I hope it helps. On the other side, there's a poem Teresa made up while she was staying at Nan's place. She calls it, Nothing Left. Nothing Left. 
I would scream, but there is no voice left. I would cry, but there are no tears left. I'd fight, but there is no strength left. That was just part of our investigation of Satanism in Britain. We're also gathering evidence about the activities of such cults here in Australia. Teresa's immediate tormentors were low-level, authentic Satanists who are the regular, everyday foot soldiers of the occult. They don't put on a show for the cameras or pontificate their philosophies to eager and gullible new journalists. They just go about worshipping Satan in the most vile, evil ways possible, ruining people's lives in the process. But notice where they conducted their detestable rituals. At an extremely wealthy estate in the countryside of England, complete with two doctors and a nurse. Satanists are everywhere, at all levels of society, but especially at the highest levels of society. When Jesus says that Satan is the ruler of the world, and when the Apostle John says that the whole world lies in the hands of the evil one, they meant it. Christians love the verses in the Bible that appear to place God in the role of leadership on earth. Verses like Romans 13.1, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. And Daniel 2.21, he deposes kings and raises up others. The typical interpretation of these verses is that it is God who places men in all positions of power, but the verses do not say that. In the case of Romans, God, being the ultimate sovereign, created the positions of authority that are occupied by men. However, it does not say that he directly elects men to power in each position of authority. God has delegated his authority downward, and, like it or not, he has delegated the authority over the earth down to Satan. Yes, he has the power to overrule the decisions of Satan if he is so inclined, but nowhere in Scripture does it give the idea that he is usually so inclined. Jesus wouldn't have said Satan is ruler of the world if God regularly overrules Satan's authority and his ability to delegate that delegated authority downward to the human authorities. Satan actually establishes rulers and authorities under his own authority, which originated with God, so backtracing, we ultimately get to God as the source of all human authority, and that's what those verses mean. And when Daniel says that he deposes kings and raises up kings, it should not be taken to mean that he deposes and raises up all kings and all rulers and all authorities in the earth. He can depose or raise up at will, and he does intervene at times, the most significant intervention to date being the arrival of Jesus Christ the first time, and the most significant intervention of all time being the return of Jesus Christ the second time, a still future event. But he does not intervene to raise up or bring down every ruler and position and power and authority. That's why evil men so often rule in governmental positions. It's why Hitler and Stalin and Lenin and Mao and a history of evil rulers even existed. And evil rulers still exist. In the world of satanic ritual abuse and murder, the lower-level foot soldiers are connected to the higher-level Satanists through a network of supporters and sympathizers, many of whom are extremely wealthy and successful individuals who have been rewarded by Satan and his world system with riches and prestige. They work hard to shield their activities from public view and the scrutiny of legitimate law enforcement, wherever legitimate law enforcement still exists. While the network is compartmentalized for security reasons, it is further protected by placing sympathizers into positions where they can extend their protection to the guilty. They have their supporters in government, in elected offices, law enforcement, the judiciary, the medical community, the business community, the military, 
and most importantly, the media. They are good at forming alliances with others who, while not card-carrying Satanists, still embrace and share many of the same moral and cultural values. And Satanists are very adept at embracing any new and debasing sin in order to win over still more supporters. The reason that we are focusing on Satanism in this episode is not just that it's a timely topic, having recently been in the news, and not just because it's a central component of the great deception that's looming on the horizon, but because people who follow and study the satanic movement believe that it's going to be the fuel that will unleash the unprecedented times of trouble that the Bible promises is coming. In Revelation 6, there are two passages that predict the coming period of widespread killing and chaos. In verses 3 and 4, when the second seal is broken, an angel is unleashed to initiate the killing by influencing the desires of people over whom it exercises control. That passage reads, When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. This fallen angel and other demonic spirits can influence the minds of anyone who provides them a foothold, and worshipping Satan and practicing satanic rituals certainly provides footholds. That makes Satanists a prime source of manpower for an unprecedentedly violent event that will precede the Great Deception and the rise of Antichrist. Notice that the text does not say that people will kill each other at this phase of the end times. It says that the angel will take peace from the earth and that people should kill each other. It seems to be a preparatory phase where people's minds are influenced to not only prepare them for future violence, chaos, division, and genocide, but to become eager partakers in it. Opening of the third seal will unleash a worldwide famine of unprecedented proportions, which will be yet another problem that will add to the difficulties that people have to face. And then the fourth seal will be broken. Verses 7 and 8 say, When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And the name of him who sat on it was Death, and Hades followed with him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth, to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. Death and Hades are not metaphors. They are the names of two angels whose names reflect their assignments with regard to mankind. The first angel is in charge of removing souls from their bodies and transporting them to the second angel, who incarcerates them in the place of holding until the judgment. These two angels work together, probably with a lot of other demons, to perform these duties. And in this case, their duties gave them power over a fourth of the earth. Now some people interpret this passage to mean that they are going to kill a fourth of the people on the earth, but it does not have to mean that. It can also mean that the angels will control the fourth of the earth that will do the killing, and the tools of killing are weapons first, then hunger from the famine. A famine can kill people indiscriminately, or a famine can be generated to kill a specific group of people, or the available food in a famine can be seized to make sure that only the right people get it and the rest starve. It's a kind of weapon that has been used successfully for a long time, most recently by Mao Zedong in China, and before him by Lenin and Stalin in Russia. They were all very good examples of the benevolence of communism. Another way that the passage says the killing will be done is with death, which seems at first to be redundant. I mean, how do you kill with death? In the Greek, the word is thanatos, which, in the widest sense, means death arising from the miseries of sin. 
In other words, people are going to die because of the sin that will be rampant and practiced across the earth, such as violence and sexual obsessions that lead to injury, disease, and death. But it can also mean the sins of idolatry, such as the idolatry of nature worship and the supposed climate perils that turn rational people into irrational advocates of technological destruction. It could even be health idolatry, where we're so compulsively obsessed about our health that we blind ourselves to the possibility that the government and some very well-connected individuals have turned the health industry into an effective weapon to achieve the complete opposite of health. Our willingness to take endless pharmaceutical interventions and accept medical tyranny to save us from some imagined perils are sure signs of a healthy idolatry that will not likely produce the medical utopias that we seek. And then, this section of Revelation ends with the phrase, to kill by the beasts of the earth. Now, lots of creative energy has gone into interpreting the meaning of these beasts, with some commentators favoring wild dogs and elephants and tigers running around killing people, and others imagining microbes infecting and killing us from within. And while those are good interpretations and visually compelling, it's best to go back to the Greek and see what the word actually means in the context of the Bible. The word for beasts that's used is therion, and one definition is a wild animal, especially a predator. But the idea of a wild animal is not always present. It can also mean bestial in the sense of human behavior. That seems like a more contextual use of the term in this passage, but there is an even better definition of the term buried in the parallel book to Revelation, one from the Old Testament period. That is the book of Daniel, and when the term beast is used in Daniel, it does not refer to a literal wild animal, but instead to governmental leaders. In the context of worldwide chaos, violence, and desperation brought on by hunger, the best definition for the killing by the beasts of the earth is that governments around the world, at the direction of their leaders, will turn on their own people and kill them. Whatever interpretation you prefer, it's clear that when the seal is broken, hell is literally going to pour out on the earth, and what better group of people to get the whole thing started than a bunch of Satan-worshipping psychopaths? No one knows this better than Russ Dizdar, someone you likely never heard of. He spent his lifetime tracking and following satanic groups and organizations in order to understand who they are, how they work, and to fight their activities on a spiritual level. Here's a little excerpt from his bio just to give you a little flavor of his experience. Coming out of the 60s, he was a dabbler in dark occultism and a practitioner of Golden Buddha meditation. But he found God and in October of 1978 was ordained to the ministry by the Southern Baptist Convention. He served as a senior pastor at four churches over 30 years. While in Ohio, he acted as the executive director of Greater Akron Youth for Christ and was also a police chaplain. In 2007, he founded Shatter the Darkness and Preemption Broadcast, an internet spirit warfare resource. He is the author of many books, has taught multiple university courses, and has wide experience in such diverse areas as criminal investigations, criminal forensics, counter-infiltration, transhumanism, and artificial intelligence. But his specialty is spiritual warfare and satanic ritual abuse, which is what we're going to hear about today. The interviewer may be a little bit hard to hear, I'll try to adjust it in the audio, and there may be some annoying background noise, but please set that aside and pay attention to what he has to say, because what he has to say is pretty important. What is the Black Awakening? Um... It's related to the red horse prophecy in Revelation. It's related to Second uh, Thessalonians 2 when it says about the day of the Lord, the parousia, that day will not occur until the apocalypse of the Antichrist and the apostasia, the word rebellion or revolt. That's all 
really defined in the prophecy of the red horse. But here's where the term came from and why I used it purposely. When I started dealing with ritually abused individuals, then we dealt with military-oriented, highly trained, you know, programmed shooters and assassins inside of them. Russ is referring to government-sponsored mind control projects that sought to pre-program people to become super soldiers, assassins, or saboteurs upon hearing a code phrase or sound sequence. The CIA versions of these programs were Operations Bluebird, Artichoke, and MKUltra, as documented in the book The CIA Doctors by Colin Ross, M.D. Dr. Ross documented the horrific abuses that were historically perpetrated by this agency in conjunction with the American military, as well as their university professor colleagues and their academic departments around the country. And all of his sources come from declassified government documents which he obtained through multiple open Public Record Act requests. These records document the forced drugging, sexual abuse, and physical torture of victims all across America, all of them in the name of science, medicine, and national defense. In the wake of these programs, they left shattered bodies, broken minds, and years of dysfunction for those who, as often as not, had no idea what they were getting involved with. And he got all that from unclassified documents. Just imagine what horrors are still buried in classified documents or in documents that were destroyed in known document purges to keep them out of the hands of investigators. The Russian, Chinese, British, Israeli, and North Korean governments all had their own versions of these programs as well. When we began to deal with them, I dealt with someone from Fort Bragg for quite a while and a few others. We were sitting in a lake, Conneaut Lake. They reached over and ripped open my shirt to see if I was wired, if I was wiring and recording them. And they were the most sophisticated satanic warrior type person. They knew five, six languages. They knew the ancient twilight languages. They knew how to conjure. They knew, they knew how to use Belteshari, Okwam, all these old Pictish languages of the Druids to summon. They were, they are the real Luciferian. They've been through many human sacrificial things. So they sat there to tell me some of those things, what they've been involved with, how they sacrifice a human. I'm listening to all this stuff from them. And then they said to me, you have no idea, Russ, how many of us there are out there. How many satanic, cho they, they use the term, chosen ones. Uh, you have no idea how many. You have no idea what's coming. Um, we smell Christian blood. We, we are waiting for our day. And when the call is given, millions of us will be released. And they looked at me and said, you believe in revivals and you believe in Pentecost and the power of God. You believe in all that. We believe in the Black Awakening, a multi-continental release of power to activate the program demonized, where they've weaponized the demonic powers to these super soldiers. Now, you may be wondering why soldiers from Fort Bragg would be talking to this man about this topic. The answer is that Russ worked for decades to identify and battle these groups of Satanists, not in the sense of getting them arrested or prosecuted, but in the sense of trying to get them to repent and turn to God. He and his specialized organization battled them on the spiritual front for many years, and both sides got to know each other pretty well. Like many soldiers on the opposite side of the battlefield, he won the respect of some of his adversaries. Not their love, but their respect. Since now is not their time to rise to the physical battle, they were willing to have a conversation with him about these topics, provided there was no recording device involved. Telling him what was coming gave them some bragging rights. 
Are they waiting for a specific time to unleash their power? Yeah, they are, because they have to do it at the moment the Antichrist is, like you read in 2 Thessalonians 2, that it's caught to echo, the restrainer is holding back the apocalypse of the Antichrist, the unveiling in his movement. So right now he's held restrained. Soon as the, he who restrains is removed, soon as that occurs, we have Whitehorse, the release of the Antichrist. Instantly, we have the release of the red, it says the whole earth. Irene, peace is taken for the whole earth, and all of a sudden, it doesn't give the details, um, but all of a sudden, on a global scale, people are released to begin to, and the Greek word is svadzo, slaughter, begin to slaughter people. It's used of animal ritual butchery to begin to slaughter individuals. That's exactly how they defined it to me back in the 90s. And we've heard this again and again and again. So that scenario fits the Masonic version of chaos before a new order. It fits uh, Father Meridon from the Black, uh, the Cathedral of the Black Goat, you know, his book, The Devil's Bible. It fits that scenario too. So some of the oldest, darkest occultists, the idea of chaos first, a collapsing of everything so that a new order can rise, that's all by design. Uh, and we've been given a heads up in prophecy, but all prophecy has boots on the ground. It'll, it'll, it'll all you know, eventually happen. So I do believe that millions and millions of these trained, programmed, altered, demonized super soldiers, uh, whether we want to say it or not, they believe they are the, they're being raised to help bring the Antichrist in. When I, was in, when I was in England just a few months ago, their top guy that deals with SRA, Wilford Wong, 25 years. So first time I meet him, I pull him aside and I said, listen, you've been doing this 25 years, yeah. I, I said, you know all about programming and demons, all that, yes. I said, I looked right at him and I said, Wilford, why are they here in England? Instantly, he said, they are here to collapse our government. They are here to help bring in and usher in the Antichrist in a new order. He, he didn't know he, didn't, he, didn't have, he already he knew. That's true in Germany, when we were in Germany, when we went to Vadelsberg Castle. That's true in Poland, when we went there. That's true in Switzerland. It's true in Canada. So when we talk about our research in 38 years worldwide, there may be well over 100 million generations of them. And if even half, or even if, a, even if 10% were intact, like say the United States, remember the shooter in Vegas? Look what he did. Look what that guy did, okay? Notice what, what would happen if 10,000 of them, what if 10,000 of them were released in one week? That's their, that's their plot plan and biblical prophecies ahead of that to say, here is what is going to happen. And from that, a you know, global monetary collapse. And from that, that's, all that chaos is coming. So Revelation 13, a whole new order with the Antichrist can come. Scary stuff. Yeah, <laughs> can be. It's it's scary for the world. For yeah, us, for us yeah. we know no matter what. Yeah, with the yeah, Holy yeah, Spirit. yeah, yeah. So, man, it's just. Wow. All right. So, does SRA exist? And if so, how prevalent is it in society today? Yeah, satanic ritual abuse, and I could say it this way: it not only exists. Um, satanic ritual abuse is inseparably connected to multiple personality disorder. All of society knows since the late 70s, and even DSM-3, DSM-4, those are the diagnostic manuals for psychology. 
they all know that multiple, all of a sudden multiplicity started showing up everywhere. They call it DID now. So the secular world, has, they, they're registering, you know, millions coming in for diagnosis on that. Now, they don't know how to handle the satanic side. So I'm going to tell you just straight out, after 38 years of dealing with it, not only is SRA real here in the United States, that there are millions of victims by design, uh, that there's now generations of them. We deal with 65 and 70-year-olds. They're the first generation. Then we go to 40-year-olds and 20-year-olds. I got 8-year-olds and 12-year-olds we're dealing with. Because if you don't stop this somewhere, they do it to the next generation. That's by design. That's the way it's supposed to be for them. So, But it occurs in selection. Um, it's generational. It caused you to simply to say that they, they bring a lot of trauma to the child to cause split in personality so that they can demonize and or begin to program. You're going to be a witch. You're going to be a conjurer. You're going to be a program shooter. All kinds of these things happen. And then they're raised in that system. And they're raised to keep all of that hidden down and just have kind of little Joey up or little Sally up. And they may not know until they're 15, 16. They may not know what's inside them until later on. But millions have already showed up at psych wards all across America since the late 70s to this day. More are coming. Now, here's, here's the other side of it. We've been to Canada, Scotland, Geneva, Switzerland, Germany, Poland. They're all over there. We just got back from Scotland, UK, and we met one of the guys there, one of the leaders in the whole nation on the subject. And same issue. It stems from the original Nazis creating a master race. Wherever the Nazis went in the early 50s, rat lines all around the planet, wherever you see them going to escape, then you see the, ri the rise of SRA. So we need to rename this. SRA, are the, that's the tools to hammer this in and to augment these people and to bring the demonization and to create them. But really, it is part of the master race development that started back in the late 30s and Himmler's goal was to create 200 million of them. That was his stated goal. Are demons scared of Holy Spirit-filled Christians? Uh, they, they sure are. As many, time, many times, if a real spirit-filled, strong believer walks into a room, obviously they know that. Like the one demon in Scripture, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? Because they didn't have the Spirit of God. Um, so they know us. So, and I think usually they, they might even feel us coming or sense us before we even sense them. But let's remember, greater is the Holy Spirit in us than any demon. So we should have great perception too. But when we do walk in a room, yeah, I believe out of all my experience, let alone scripture, uh, they know a real spirit-filled believer. And what well, they'll, they'll want to try to stay down or get the person to leave the room. They want to get out of there. We got to remember in James, they shudder, they tremble even at the name Jesus. So a real believer that knows who they are, know what they're doing, they walk into a room, it's the other way around. Even though they want to play the game of scare you and do whatever, you know, all that kind of stuff, the authority we've been given is so decimating to them. Um, that's why they go out screaming at times. They scream and screech going out at times because that authority is so overwhelming. Wow. So can the person be demon-possessed and not know it? Um, I believe that they can be demon-possessed and think it's something else. 
a, a new age. I've got a spirit, you know, a psych. I got a spirit guy. Uh, I've got a. a we had one lady come in. I have a family animal, ancestral animal spirit, and this is a good thing for our family. So we said, let's test it. The pastor that was in our offices just at the doorway looked and said, in the name. Of, as soon as he began to pray, and he said, in the name of Jesus. This, they she called it a bear spirit. This demon manifested and just was ready to attack him and growl. He rebuked it, cast it out of her. She went to the ground. She began to cry. She said, I had no idea. I didn't know what it was. We got to remember Satan can masquerade. Remember that scripture? He can masquerade. It's the word metaschizmazo. He can morph his presence tactically for deception without changing his nature. So he can get into, you know, that's why people believe aliens are, you know, this or or uh, ancient, you know, the, the great white brotherhood and things like that, these ancient spirits. They, their, their power to masquerade and, and, and play and, and tactically do whatever they need to get the allowability to get in. So I do think some people have stuff, we've seen this, they have stuff, they know something's there. They're not, you know, maybe they opened a door somewhere, whatever, but once somebody comes to express authority and all of a sudden, full-blown manifestation occurs they're like i had no idea i thought it was just a you know helper spirit guide i just thought it was an enhancement and they have no idea the depth of it and uh so it can be they don't know the full depth of it in, until some engagement occurs wow. is it possible to cast a demon out of yourself through fasting and prayer. Yeah, it is. I think, uh, and again, as, as a believer, you know, when you get saved, now there might be people, and, and when I say possession, I mean, if a demon, like like Mark 5, that guy couldn't get saved on his own. That guy couldn't do anything on his own because he was so controlled. So ultimately, that level of possession, you need an outsider to help them and then lead them to Jesus. And look what happened in his life. So, but when a believer does have some kind of attachment, something or whatever else, and they realize whatever they they were deeply into something, and then they come to the Lord, but yet, some, you know, something they didn't close the door on. Uh, I believe in what some people call auto deliverance, to where, hey, well, if you know your authority, I even believe that if you know, you, all of a sudden a believer realizes something's here, and it shouldn't be because I'm a believer now. Jesus deliver me. Just going to the Lord, that can happen because it's not, you know, he wants everything cleared out anyway. So you can have a deliverance that way. Or if you're a believer, say, well, I know my authority and, you know, but but know the, the legal right. Know the reason why it's there it's so that you can, re, you know, renounce that doorway or that practice and say, never again, you have no rights here. Are some people more susceptible to demonic attacks than others? Yeah, I'd say, well, and again, excuse me, it would come down to, number one, if you're lost. Ephesians chapter 2, uh, Satan is the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in those who are disobedient. So when you're lost, he has rights to you anyway. Uh, not just to jump in and be full possession, you need more, even more access, but he has rights overall. You're lost. You have no defense. So the issue is... If you've been raised in a family of psychics or voodoo practitioners, so even if you're raised in some stuff, or if you open the doors, you don't know, you know, you're just going to go out and do, you know, smoke up and do acid. You get in that world, those kind of doorways can open little by little by little. So um, I think some are more vulnerable depending on what's around them. If their moms or dads were witches or Satanists and things, 
and they've never repented and so the spirits want to come down to the next generation so even that is an, an extra um, pressure uh, when a son or daughter you know they didn't do anything but because of mom and dad opened the doors they want to come down that family line and go after so that so a son or daughter or even a grandchild may have more undue pressure so are generational curses real in your yeah, I believe they're real, and in, in, in they're called familiar spirits in the Old Testament, meaning they're familiar with, in the family line or familiar with an area. So if my grandfather was a Satanist and he was really a practitioner, first, when he died, he would want to do a ritual to hand it all down, all those powers down to somehow. But if he doesn't and the spirits come out or even their spirits are on him, they're always looking for more access. And they want, like in the Old Testament, they want the whole tribe. They not only want the, the grandpa or the dad, they want the family, then they want the tribe. That's why the whole tribes were infested. They want, the, they want everything. So they're gonna go after, if a dad or mom or grandmother or grandfather opened those big doors, um, it gives that, that spirit even, you know, because, well, either way, they're just gonna come after to bring influence. Doesn't mean a, doesn't mean a grandson or granddaughter is gonna be automatically influenced. Or, or taken over, or they're gonna become a Satanist or a, or a witch. Um, but there's undue influence because of the moms and dads or or anybody else. You could be in a dormitory at college and you got a guy that's you know deeply into something, voodoo and practicing spirits and whatever, and you're in the same room, you're gonna have problems. You could be vulnerable to attack, uh, vulnerable to, be, to influence, to you know open a gateway to let them in. So in that sense, yeah, you can be more vulnerable. Okay, uh, next question. What can a Christian do to protect themselves against demonic attacks initiated by other people through the use of black magic rituals and or spells? I'm glad you asked the question because that's a, all of us have regular warfare as believers. You know, we read in Ephesians 6, you know, our struggles not against flesh and blood, but against those principalities and powers. And we're commanded to put on the armor of God so we can be strong and bold. We also have been given authority, and this is important for us to know, because you saw in the crowds we just saw here, I asked how many here know your authority? Ninety Over 90% did not. Jesus had to give you authority to trample, to tread, to bring a crushing blow to the work of the enemy and to overcome all the power of the enemy. So what's happening now is, and, what, and all the SRAs know this, for you know decades now, they've been summoning spirits, just like the Old Testament, summoning spirits and sending them with assignment or putting a demon on an object to, to give to bring a curse voodoo can do this uh santeria can you know in a lighter level but still do this uh the saint of death in mexico with millions and millions the drug lords are doing it they're they're doing rituals and doing human sacrifice to fight each other at times too so when a demon is summoned and sit against you and you feel all there is a, a sense that there is a real impact um the awareness is number one, but the authority you have, if you'll respond immediately, is saying that, Lord, just say first, Lord, what is this? What's going on here? The Spirit of God is in you. Uh, what's going on here? But immediately respond, I renounce this. I command this to be broken. You will have no effect on me. I rebuke this. And then I pray for the sender. Lord, engage them. Whoever they are, or like in astral projection too, but whoever they are, if they have summoned and sent, uh, we've had some high magazines do stuff and blood rituals, and we've had uh, pictures drawn, pictures sent to us of the child sacrifice saying, Russ, we did this for you, and they conjured and sent. 
So, and the good news is we can preempt a lot of things. Every day when I'm in my prayer time, I want to, Lord, is there anything that's been done? Anything set my way? I want to hit it now. Um, are there covens? Now, what we do is we locate these underground groups and we map them out on paper and we target them. We come against anything and all the demonic stuff they're doing. We pray for exposure. And we pray for God to engage the people, to, to bring them to their knees, all, all, to save them. So you look at Saul of Tarshish, how God brought him down. Um, I think that can happen too. Amen. Russ and his group actively fight SRA, satanic ritual abuse, through his spiritual warfare ministry, and their ministry activities have an effect. Or more precisely, he did fight SRA because in 2021, both he and his wife passed away. He was a friend of many people, including Doug Hagman of the Hagman Report. Doug did a little tribute for Russ after he passed away. And welcome to this edition of the Hagman Report, where truth can't be silenced. It is Monday, October 18th, 2021. I'm Doug Hagman, and uh, I've got some very, very sad news to pass along to um, to everyone. Um, Russ Dizdar passed away. Russ Dizdar passed away yesterday. Um good friend. You, you know, I, I try to think of a, a good way to honor uh, Russ. And uh, I remember him being in the studio and we, we were talking about this. And, and Russ was the kind of guy and, and um, I, I, they couldn't get him through the uh, direct assassination attempt. And the last time we spoke, he said, or one of the last times that we spoke, he said, you know, um, just just got just told that uh, they're doing blood rituals against me and my family. And, uh, you know, he asked everyone to pray, and, of course, the battle in the spiritual. I don't expect, I don't expect people to understand this in terms of what's really going on behind the scenes. But there's just a tremendous war taking place, and it's all spiritually... Um, it's all within the spiritual. And uh, we're going to miss Russ, Eric, the tech, and myself, and my wife. And Now, his wife is in, the, is in the hospital at the moment. Please keep her in your prayers. Um, I spoke with uh, team member Sherry and, uh, and some others. You know, we would do a disservice if we just gave up. We're not going to give up. We're going to double down. And, and that's my commitment and my promise to Russ and uh, to his family and to all of you. Unfortunately, Russ's wife didn't survive very long after that tribute was made, but that seems to be the way it is for many couples when they reach old age. They pass away one right after the other. But while he was alive, Russ made the strong case that we are engaged in a great spiritual war, the likes of what is coming we have never seen before. For a little while longer, we will be able to pretend that all is normal and materialistic on this little ball of earth, but the rising frequency and intensity of satanic ritual abuse is one of the indicators that the spiritual battle is growing. The Antichrist is going to be ushered in by standard military hardware and soldiers, but he's also going to be ushered in by an outpouring of spiritual energy, activity, and power. That is all part of the coming great deception. 
Why do we Christians fight against spiritual deceptions other than we are commanded to fight as Christians? We fight because God says his people die for lack of knowledge. We might rephrase that to say his people will die for lack of knowledge because when the restrainer stops restraining, the Satanists of the world and probably many imitators of them will be hunting people who bear the name of Christ. Maybe you don't care and say something like, just kill me and be done with it. Well, do you care about your children, your siblings, or your parents? Do you care about those who don't believe, who have not confessed Christ? If they die without Christ, it's too late for them. That's one reason that God forbids us from taking an innocent life. God gives all of us time to recognize our great need of him and our hopelessness without him. Sometimes it takes years or even decades for someone to come to the realization of their need for Christ. God loves people so much he's willing to wait and be mocked and blasphemed just to give them a little more time, because when time runs out, it runs out. If we take time away from a sinner prematurely by killing him or her, then we have taken God's prerogative into our own hands and we essentially condemn them to an eternity without God. That's a pretty big sin, and it shows a complete lack of confidence in God for salvation of that person's soul at least, even a person who is hostile towards Christians. That's why we are to love our enemies and not kill them. But while we do have to love them, we don't have to invite conflict into our own lives. When the chaos comes, there will be things Christians can do to protect themselves. Jesus did not say to his disciples, go out and make themselves prey to the world. He told them to be as wary as serpents and as innocent as doves. In other words, keep a low profile, don't invite catastrophe, and live to fight another day. Do you know what's going to happen to Christians who claim they don't care and are caught up in the carnage that is to come? I'm talking about the ones who become victims of these death cults. Those Christians are going to sit around in the throne room of God, wallowing in their misery and anger for being so gullible and so victimized. And it says in Revelation 6, verses 10 to 11, And they cried out in a loud voice, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you avenge our blood and judge those who dwell on the earth? Then each of them was given a white robe and told to rest a little while longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers, were killed just as they had been killed. They are frustrated and they are angry and they're impatient. It's not the picture of a great feast of the lamb sitting around a table filled with goodies. It's a picture of frustration and despair and outrage and anger for having been victimized. And you don't want to be one of those people. I think you would prefer to make it to the rapture so that you can be escorted out of town and into the throne room of God in one happy, grateful peace, content that you endured the race and made it to the finish line. And if we pass away naturally along the way, well, that's just fine. It's the way it goes. So the battle looming ahead is a spiritual one, and we are the warriors. Now we are starting to get the flavor of the other side of the sixth generation warfare, the kind that is presently being waged all around the world. Next up, we get to see how this sixth generation warfare mixes spirit with science to produce a really novel new strategy for Satan and his followers. If you found this podcast interesting, useful, or important, please recommend it to someone you know and punch that sign, symbol, or button to encourage others to listen. Underground Christian can be heard on several fine podcast platforms, including Podbean, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, TuneIn, iHeart, Player FM, Listen Notes, Pandora, Samsung Podcasts, Podchaser, and undergroundchristian.net. If you wish to contact me, please send an email to undergroundchristian at outlook.com. Lord God, the mighty and powerful ruler of this universe, 
While we cannot properly or fully comprehend your majesty and glory down here on this wretched little earth, we pray that you will send your spirit to enable us to honor who you are with our humble efforts to fulfill the Lord Jesus' commandments to make disciples and battle the spiritual forces of evil. We need courage, and with courage, we need the knowledge of whom we are fighting and how they fight this war. Please give us both, and we pray for the victims of the satanic ritual abuse that they will be freed from the bondage of Satan and his minions on earth and justice will be brought on behalf of the victims. We pray for Teresa, wherever she is today, that she'll be healed of the evil that was brought to her and through her testimony and bravery will aid others in being rescued from their circumstances by the love of God and of his Christ. And that's it for today. My voice thanks me.